Good evening. Daniel chapter 7 tonight, as we on Sunday nights go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, please wave to one of these men coming up the aisle right now, and they'll put a Bible in your hand marked to our passage that we're studying. We want everybody to own a Bible. God wants everyone to own and know the Bible, so if you don't have a Bible, uh, receive that as a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. When uh, in Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel is made up of 12 chapters, and it really uh, breaks down very, very neatly into two uh, sections and uh, six chapter divisions, and the first six chapters of Daniel are mainly historical and uh, uh, giving us in, uh, insight into uh, the, the life and the times and the events and, and the spiritual significance of them in Daniel's lifetime. And then the last six, beginning with chapter 7 this evening, they are uh, prophetic. And this latter uh, division of the book of Daniel, there's a, a record given to us of a series of visions that God gives to uh, Daniel, in which God makes known to Daniel, makes known to the Jewish people, God's people in that day, but also to God's people all the way through the age and, uh, and into this room, even here today, of what man's history will be from the time of Daniel, about 2500 BC, all the way until the end of the age when man's governments come to an end and God establishes his eternal uh, kingdom. Uh, John Walvert states the significance of uh, Daniel chapter 7, and before I quote him on this, if you're wanting what I consider to be probably the most solid uh, resources you can use in the study of prophecy, uh, get anything by John Walvert. And, uh, and also to get his uh, in individual commentaries on Revelation and on Daniel, and you will be on rock-solid uh, ground. Very, very uh, tremendous student of the prophetic scriptures and uh, in heaven now. And so uh, he writes of this chapter, as interpreted by conservative expositors, the vision of Daniel provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament, and it's absolutely true. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. We get a little bit of context of it, and, and Daniel begins us with a, the timing in which this dream and, and visions were given to him. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. And so uh, this uh, dream and these visions are given to him in the first year of Belshazzar. We've already seen that he is the grandson uh, of King Nebuchadnezzar uh, the grand, uh, of, of Babylon, probably given to him in about 553 B.C., uh, 14 years prior to the fall of Babylon to the Medes uh, and the Persians. And so as a, as a result, many, many years before the events of uh, chapter 5, having to do with the handwriting uh, on the wall on the night of Belshazzar's overthrow and uh, chapter 6 detailing uh, Daniel in the lion's den under the reign of uh, Darius the Mede. Daniel's about 68 years old at the, at the, uh, at the time of, of chapter 7 here. And the book of Daniel is not supremely concerned with providing us with a, uh, a chronology uh, of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar or uh, even a strict chronology in terms of the ministry of Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel has a single great theme, and the single great theme was in order to communicate to uh, the Jewish people who had been removed from their homeland, chastened by God. It was their own uh, doing that had brought it about. Uh, but they had no hope of returning to the land, and, and it was a, a, a comfort and an encouragement of God to them that the reign of the Gentiles would not be uh, indefinite or, or, or eternal, 
but that God would establish his kingdom and to infuse hope in the hopelessness of the situation that they were in. And it's the same message that is communicated through Daniel to us today as Christians now so many years later, and that is the fact that man's rule, man's reign, man's power will not be the final thing or the final chapter, say, in human history but God will have the final say in establishing his kingdom. And so he deals with it in terms of a theme, and he takes different uh, uh, pieces and, and takes them out of their specific order uh, chronologically in order to drive home that point in the, in the way that the Holy Spirit sees, um, sees best. The vision came to Daniel at night, so, uh, and while he was on his bed, and uh, Daniel uses both the terms to describe it, he uses the terms dream, and he uses the term visions. And so he will interchange his reference to uh, this particular dream and vision. He'll inter in interchange the terminology to uh, describe the revelation. So uh, it, it, in referring to the experience as a dream, singular, uh, he's, uh, he is uh, Daniel is communicating that the vision is a single vision. It is intended to uh, communicate a single message, but that the dream was also made up of several individual visions that began to unfold before him as he was uh, lying there on, uh, on his bed. And, and after he received uh, the vision, we're told that uh, he was convinced of the supernatural origin of it, the supernatural importance of the vision, and so he proceeded to write it down, and so we have it in uh, the book of Daniel. And, uh, and Daniel spoke saying, verse 2, I saw my vision by night. And so he receives the vision at night. And behold, now here's the vision that he sees. Uh, the four winds of heaven were stirring the great seas. And so uh, you can imagine this is quite a storm to be in. Usually a, a storm, here we are in, in the winter season, a storm can be fierce enough if you have just one wind blowing significantly hard enough from one direction. But here you have uh, winds coming in from all directions, and they're coming from, uh, from heaven all at once. It's divine, and, uh, and it's stirring up the great sea, and the great sea uh, refers to the Mediterranean Sea. Throughout the Old Testament, the Mediterranean Sea is referred to uh, as the great sea, being the great sea uh, in that, that Mediterranean region. They certainly uh, had no uh, knowledge of the Pacific Ocean uh, or any real knowledge of the Atlantic Ocean and the, and the size and, and the scope of it. So this vision has to do specifically with the Mediterranean world, but as we'll see, it has to do with the whole world uh, as a result. In uh, verse 3, he declares, and four great beasts came up from the sea, and each was different uh, from the other. And so uh, the, the, the sea as they come up, these beasts come up out of the sea. Verse 17 is going to tell us that these beasts come up out of the earth, and, uh, and so the sea is oftentimes uh, a, a roiled up sea is often uh, used in the Old Testament to refer to uh, kind of uh, humanity of the sinner uh, not having uh, any more rest than a, a roiling sea. And so uh, here they come up out of humanity into human history uh, from, from the earth. And so uh, they uh, come up and they uh, arise as it is going to occur here, arise and uh, reign over human history in that region of the world known as the uh, association with the Mediterranean uh, Sea. And so when he talks about uh, all of these, uh, these things in, uh, um, uh, of, of heaven and, and the stirring up of things there in verse 2, communicating that God is overall, he is in control of these kingdoms that are going to come on the scene, and he is overruling all of the agitation, he is overruling uh, all of the ups and downs, all of the kind of washing machine turbulence that constitutes the earth in human history. Uh, we make a mess of things, but beyond the mess, he is 
is moving human history to his uh, God-appointed end. And so here, uh, the, uh, the four great beasts, they come up out of the sea, and they're going to represent four great world empires that will rise and fall in human history uh, before human history gives way to a new heaven and, and a new earth. It is important uh, to realize that the visions that Daniel receives here in chapter 7, that they correspond to the vision that God had given to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and that Daniel had interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar, where uh, you had this great image that was put before Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, and then uh, the, the shoulders and the arms of silver, and then the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and then the feet of iron uh, and of clay. And all of it in chapter 2, representing uh, the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and then a final world-ruling empire that will be in existence at the time of, of Jesus' return and, uh, and will give way then to uh, the kingdom age. It, it, and so while it covers the same territory, it, it takes a look at this great truth from kind of a different angle. And in chapter 7, we're going to be given uh, insights that weren't provided to Nebuchadnezzar. In describing these kingdoms in terms of this great image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, I mean, it was majestic, it was awesome, it would uh, take your breath away. And here you have these uh, great kingdoms in human history as they would be viewed from uh, the perspective of earth or from the human perspective. Amazing. Wow. I mean, we still read about these empires with great awe and, and uh, a, a hunger for knowledge uh, uh, even, even today. But now in chapter 7, these same exact kingdoms are described as they're viewed uh, from heaven. And from the vantage point of heaven, they are beasts. And, uh, and you take all of these kingdoms, and so often like the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire or whatever it might be, we uh, look at the great monuments that they built, the great advancement that, that they, they made. People go to Egypt, and though Egypt isn't mentioned uh, uh, here because Egypt was earlier in the, in the course of things, but when, when you see the Sphinx, you see the pyramids, and, and we're all amazed at it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going and seeing it, uh, but from the vantage point of heaven, uh, what heaven looks at supremely is the uncountable countable slaves that died in the building of these monuments to, uh, to man and to the name and the reputation of these kings and of these pharaohs. And so it's all the way through on things, how we view human history and how uh, God views those same kingdoms are two entirely different uh, perspectives. He tells us there in verse 3 that each one was different from the other, and uh, each of the kingdoms would be as different as, as the animals that are going to be uh, described here as representing them. The first uh, great beast that is described in verse 4, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And, uh, and so uh, here's this, the appearance of this. It's a lion and it's got eagle's wings. And so uh, all, really all around the world you can see it. You go online and Google it if you'd like. But uh, statutes and tile, uh, tile reliefs of uh, winged lions were very much the symbol of the Babylonian uh, empire. And uh, you can find uh, these tiles, these statues uh, in museums in Paris in Berlin, uh, even in our own uh, very own New York City. And so the lion and the eagle uh, also used by uh, Jeremiah the prophet in describing Nebuchadnezzar as the founder of the Babylonian empire. And so it clearly speaks of that Babylonian empire. The lion, of course, is the king of the beasts, and it speaks of the power and the strength and, and majesty. The eagle's wings speaks of swiftness and, and really suggests the uh, swiftness of the conquest of, 
of the world by the Babylonian Empire. It goes on and describes this uh, first empire. Uh, Daniel says, I watched as he sees this lion with the eagle's wings. He's watching all of this in real time. Uh, and in the vision, I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And so uh, this is probably a reference to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, humbling by God, that seven-year period in which we've studied earlier in the book uh, of Daniel, where he lived out in the open a as an animal. And so the wings being plucked off speaks of his loss of power. Uh, it, it was lifted up from the earth and speaks of God's restoration of him uh, as the king of Babylon once again, made to stand on uh, two feet like a man, speaks of uh, the humility that this season infused into uh, his life made him aware of his weaknesses. A heart being given to it speaks of the comparative uh, compassion with which Nebuchadnezzar would then rule following this humbling at the hands of God. It is interesting to realize that Nebuchadnezzar following that uh, humbling, uh, he never again uh, led his armies into battle. And so a perfect description from a different vantage point, the heavenly vantage point, what's important to heaven is it looked at the Babylonian empire. And then uh, suddenly he says, in verse 5, as the second beast now uh, uh, appears, uh, another beast, a second, like a bear. And it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And uh, they said to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And so the bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And a bear certainly lacks the... Um, the, the speed of a winged lion, uh, but you wouldn't want to be caught in the open, really, uh, uh, with, uh, in terms of either of them, with these massive claws that we have uh, in, in terms of trying to defend ourselves. But uh, by comparison, uh, a bear is a large animal. It's very much a lumbering kind of animal, but it's very, very powerful and very ferocious as a uh, predator. Every once in a while, you'll uh, we'll it, it read maybe an article or something. We'll talk about somebody gets out in the wild or they're in their tent or something camping or whatever and a bear comes in. And, um, uh, and the next thing they know, maybe they're trying to run from it. They can't run from it. They curl up in a ball and then the bear begins to, you know, gnaw on their head. And they hear the scraping of the teeth on their skull. And of course, your immediate thought is this can't be good. And, but somehow they survive it to tell the story, but a very, very ferocious animal. And, uh, and of course, this, all of this was characteristic of the Medo-Persian uh, Empire. Their army was very much like a bear. Uh, they uh, defeated their enemies just by sheer force. They would uh, field armies that were just simply massive, unknown in the world up to that, uh, that time. And uh, they very rarely acted with any sense of trying to win a victory by virtue of speed or cunning or agility. They just came in, brought everything they had, and then they just proceeded to crush you. Uh, and that was their, their methodology. When it speaks about this bear being raised up on one side, in other words, one side was, uh, is it would raise itself one side is higher uh, than the other, uh, seems to refer to the fact that of the Medo-Persian Empire was made up of two empires, but one of the two empires was far greater than the other. Even though we call it the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian element of that empire was far stronger uh, than the Median side of, of that, uh, that kind of confederation uh, that they had. And uh, all of this is going to be emphasized in, uh, once again in, in chapter 8 where uh, the uh, two horns of the ram with, with the, the horn that comes up last being higher and greater, and then the horns are of unequal uh, length. And there it's plainly identified as, as the kings of Media and, and Persia. It has three ribs in its mouth uh, between its teeth. And uh, makes you hungry, doesn't it? Uh, some nice pork ribs or beef ribs or something like that. Everyone but Jennifer Hinman. But... Um, 
so, uh, and this appears to, uh, to have a reference to the major conquests of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the conquest of Babylon, and then Lydia, which is modern-day Western Turkey and Egypt, and their conquests were in, in that order. It was told to arise and devour much flesh, and so it appears that it is given permission, a decree from heaven, uh, tacitly to go ahead and, and subdue many nations, and ultimately the Medo-Persian would control more of the world under a single empire uh, than any other empire had up to that point in time. And then there is the introduction of the third uh, uh, great beast in uh, verse 6. And after this, and, that, and you notice that after this, and the idea is after the appearance of the, the second great beast, then, uh, then the, the third great beast comes on the scene. In other words, Daniel is saying that these great kingdoms will not um, all exist simultaneously uh, in, in human history at some point in time, but that they will uh, come into being uh, sequentially uh, 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 one after the other. And so after this I looked and there was another, uh, like a leopard, and it had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given uh, to it. And so its appearance was like a leopard, and this represents the uh, Grecian Empire. And the leopard, of course, is known for its speed with which it, it moves in order to uh, secure a kill uh, of, of its prey. And uh, a leopard uh, with four wings, of course, is to, to double emphasize uh, the speed with which this empire would uh, conquer the world and become uh, a, a world-dominating uh, uh, empire. And so you've got a, here you've got a flying leopard uh, speaks of something that's able to attack and, uh, and conquer with astonishing speed. Well, as the old saying goes, the only thing faster than a leopard is a flying leopard. I just made that up. That isn't really an old saying. I just made it. Maybe they'll catch on. Uh, but I couldn't say that with a straight face. Uh, but, uh, but it certainly was characteristic of, of the Grecian Empire. Uh, Alexander the Great led the Grecian Empire, and in 10 years he had not only uh, conquered the Persians, but he had conquered uh, the world all the way to India. Uh, his armies that he would field, uh, uh, sometimes he would field, uh, he would be working with an army that numbered in uh, 5,000, and, and he would conquer forces of 50,000, or he would have 25,000 and conquer forces of 100,000. Everything about uh, Alexander the Great was about speed, and very often he used the element of surprise in his conquests because he moved with such speed that the army armies of the ancient world uh, were preparing themselves for battle, not thinking that an army could even remotely move as fast as he moved his armies, and then he would be able to uh, uh, come and catch them, them by surprise. And so uh, the, the Grecian Empire fairly leaped across the entire world. And of course, Alexander the Great had this insatiable desire to conquer and to and more and more uh, Territory, and it's said that at the age of 33 that, that he wept over the fact that there were no more lands to conquer. When it talks about this empire having the four heads there in the latter part of, of verse 6, this speaks of the fact that after Alexander the Great's death and after a, a great internal struggle within the Grecian Empire. Nobody expected Alexander the Great to die that young, and so there was no clear successor for that. And the kingdom was ultimately divided up among his four, uh, four generals and, uh, and uh, uh, given to them. Again, we look back on all of this as history. 
the fulfillment of all of this. Daniel knows none of this. He is talking about events now in this vision that are hundreds of years into the future uh, beyond, uh, beyond him. And so we're told that of this, uh, this, this beast, dominion was given to it again. Uh, the reach of the Greek empire was really, really astonishing in size. And then there's the introduction of the fourth great beast and and verse 7, and after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, ter- dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, and it had huge iron teeth. And now Daniel gives up trying to associate this with some kind of an animal. This is in a, a league of its own. And it was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet, and it was different from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had uh, ten horns. And so this uh, massively strong, I mean, in terms of strength, in terms of, of, of its size and, and its power, it, it dwarfed everything before it and that could be likened to something from uh, the animal kingdom. And, uh, and so this empire would be in a league of its own in terms of its power, in terms of its ferocity, and in terms of its its size and uh, uh, all of those other kingdoms they they have possessed all of it but not on the level of 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 this fourth kingdom and this beast represents the the roman empire which followed the greek uh, empire and it talks about it having huge iron teeth with which it uh, devoured and uh, shattered and crushed and uh, tramped what was left under its feet, Uh, whether uh, the Roman Empire in expanding its empire or whether in maintaining peace within its empire, uh, it was very, very firm in its enforcement of what was known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And the Peace of Rome, as we've seen before, is if you... uh, uh, rebel against us, I will break a you face. And uh, that's what the Roman Empire did. And uh, they were merciless in it. And the Roman Empire, uh, in terms of uh, military uh, tactics, in terms of military uh, skill and discipline, uh, there was nothing in the world that uh, approached it until it came into existence and, uh, and it became the model of warfare. Uh, for uh, uh, hundreds of years after uh, it, it came into existence. And so uh, here it is, uh, the, this fourth kingdom presented as the greatest empire of all as the four presented to us. And of course that we know that there has been no single empire in human history that has even remotely approached uh, the power, the strength, uh, the ruthlessness and all uh, of, of the Roman Empire. It's fascinating. People study the Roman Empire to this day. You want to Google or go on Amazon or anywhere you want and look at, for books on the Roman Empire. Uh, they're continuing to be bi- uh, written. I mean, uh, several great works on an annual basis because of the fascination that continues with it because of what... Uh, would characterize an empire that could last for hundreds and hundreds of years as the Babylonian Empire did, or the, the, the uh, I'm sorry, the, the Roman Empire did. The Babylonian Empire lasted just barely 70 years, and the Persian Empire about 200 years, the Greek Empire about 180 years, and the Roman Empire lasted in one form or another for about a thousand years. And it, at its peak, when it simply dominated the entire world, uh, it did so for a period of 500 years. And so how many years has the United States been in existence, you know? And uh, not quite halfway there. And, uh, and you realize that's a long time to, to dominate uh, uh, the world. And so uh, here uh, they ruled and dominated the world longer than all of those other empires, all of them uh, put together. And so 
uh, this, the greatness of this, this empire. The mention of it, and this becomes significant as we continue through here, uh, is the mention that it had ten horns. And in Scripture, horns are uh, usually uh, uh, symbolic uh, in speaking of uh, power. And so it speaks to the tremendous power of the Roman Empire. So to have ten horns, is the average animal would have, uh, you know, one, and then at the most two. And... Uh, and so here is uh, five times the normal two horns of a typical uh, beast. The mention of the ten horns, uh, which correspond with uh, the ten toes of, of iron and clay in, in the, the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar in, in chapter uh, 2, it serves to introduce us then to a final last day's world-ruling empire that will rise out of the old Roman Empire, as we saw in chapter 2, in a new form. And so, uh, in its revived form, this revived Roman Empire, as it's often spoken of, it will have ten horns, that is, it will have ten kings, as we'll uh, see as, the, as it's interpreted for us, as it, as it unfolds. And all of this is not only consistent with God's a revelation to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, but also with God's revelation to the Apostle John in, uh, concerning the coming Antichrist in, in the book of Revelation, whose dominion will immediately precede uh, Jesus' second coming. And you might write in the Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, in your margin there, uh, John wrote, and he said, I'll read a single verse out of it, and then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads, uh, on his heads, a blasphemous name. And so the, the uh, strong, strong relationship between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation in helping us to put all of the pieces together in terms of what's called eschatology, the study uh, of end times. And then in verse 8, we come to the horns uh, of uh, the fourth uh, beast. And I was, Daniel says, as he's watching, again, this thing is unfolding before his, his eyes, so to speak, and, and he, he sees these ten horns that make up this, this, this great fourth beast, and he's considering them. Uh, and then as he's considering them, uh, there was another horn, a little one, coming up uh, among uh, them. And, and before this uh, little horn, uh, three of the first of the, uh, the ten horns were plucked out by the roots. And, and there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so, in all of this, we have a revelation uh, uh, to Daniel and to us as a result of where the Antichrist will rise to power uh, at, at the end of the age, how he will do it, what will characterize his, his uh, reign during a very short reign, uh, seven years, during the seven years of the tribulation period and, and of his ultimate destruction as it's laid out here. As Daniel's considering the ten horns, uh, suddenly this little horn came up uh, among them and uh, and the emergence of this little horn uh, resulted in the three horns being plucked up by the roots, literally uprooted. So you see the ten horns, however you want to see them, in clusters of whatever, or ten straight across. This horn comes up, and three of them are uprooted uh, as a result of it. And so he conquers them in some way. He conquers, these are kings, as we'll see in a moment. He conquers uh, and overpowers them in some way. Uh, he will not uh, succeed a, a previous king or kings when the Antichrist takes power ultimately during the, the beginning of the tribulation power uh, period, he, uh, there will be some kind of a, a violent overthrow of some kind. And, and he takes the position of three that are in power of some kind of a ten-country confederation uh, in the region of the old Roman Empire, Europe. And then somehow as he, uh, as he brings this great force against the these three, the remaining ten now 
are cowed down uh, to him, they'll submit to him and effectively allowing him to now uh, uh, to gain complete control uh, of uh, the entire confederation by by force. In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. That's a weird dream, isn't it? I mean, you see a horn with an eye looking around. You think Mona Lisa's creepy. Uh, This is really, really... uh, uh, creepy, and so here uh, the the idea is that this horn that gains power is a man. Uh, this final world ruling empire will not be so much about a government or about a nation. It will be led by a man. All of these other previous four, uh, they they are spoken of in terms of a people group, or they're spoken of in terms of a nation. But here. That seven-year tribulation period, uh, the reign of the Antichrist, it will be all about uh, a, a single man who will, uh, will uh, come into prominence. Now, we, uh, the, the, speaking of eyes, they're often used in Scripture as an instrument of observation or learning. And so they tend to oftentimes speak of intelligence. They speak of insight. And so the idea is that the Antichrist will be uh, very, very smart. He will be very, very intelligent, very, very clever. He will be possessed by the devil himself, Uh, not by a demon, not by a pack of demons, but Satan himself will uh, possess uh, the Antichrist during uh, his reign. And of course, uh, Satan, uh, whatever we may think of him, uh, possesses tremendous intelligence and and tremendous uh, cunning. And, and so when we're talk, uh, told here further about him having a mouth that speaks pompous words, the idea is literally he speaks great things. Uh, verse 25 is going to give us insight into the kind of things that he speaks. He's going to speak uh, pompous words against the Most High. So he's going to come on the scene, and you, if you, if you think you've seen arrogance in a political leader, or in a world ruler, or in a dictator in human history, or in all of the Caesars, uh, or in Hitler, or whoever you want to find in terms of history, everyone will pale in comparison to the arrogance of this Antichrist when he comes uh, on, on the scene. And with astonishing arrogance, he's going to blaspheme God. He's going to blaspheme God's word. He's going to blaspheme God's wisdom. He's going to blaspheme his character and everything that God uh, stands for. And of course, if he, if he were to do that uh, today, every Christian in the world, of course, would be uh, repulsed by, by him. But remember, Christians are going to be removed from the earth by way of the rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, the tribulation period begins with the breaking of the first seal in the book of Revelation. All of the seals represent the wrath of God. Even though the Antichrist is a man of peace for three and a half years, he is still, uh, still his revelation onto the world scene constitutes the wrath of God. And the Bible teaches that we as Christians are not appointed unto wrath, so we must be removed prior to the breaking of those seals and the revelation uh, of of the Antichrist. But uh, the whole world is going to fall under his spell. They're going to be completely captivated uh, by him, by his uh, uh, message. And I mean, you can imagine how easy it would be for someone of a supernatural demonic charisma, uh, the ultimate uh, Satan, the ultimate student of human nature, what we love to hear about ourselves, what will fool us. And you remove the church and the influence of the Holy Spirit from the world through the church, and you bring this guy uh, on the scene, and how easy it's going to be to sway the entire world to uh, a world that's eager to heed and eager to follow someone who will finally come onto the scene and take us from all of these archaic notions of God, and especially the God of the Bible, and the God of the Jews, and the God God of Christians who is so dogmatic and so intolerant of sin, 
I mean, it will be effortless once Christians are gone uh, to sway the entire world in that, in that direction. And then, uh, and, and he'll come on the scene and, and with the promise to lead the entire world into a new age in human history, a godless age where we will now discover our potential independent of, of God. And of course, the world that we live in is completely set up uh, for it. Uh, if the Antichrist was among uh, the 65 uh, 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 candidates for the Democratic nomination. Uh, he would win hands down. Uh, it would be over for Biden. It would be over for every single one of them along the way. And I can't pick on the Republicans because there's just the one on that side. But we're talking about, I mean, here we are. We're seeing, well, you know, we see people in polling and then people giving millions of dollars to people that are changing their position every day. What will the world do when someone like this comes on? Uh, the scene and tells them everything that they want to hear and then for three and a half years gives that to them. I know the world is very, very set up for uh, this man to come on the scene and no part of the world is more set up than post-Christian Europe, which is exactly where uh, his reign is going to be, uh, going to be centered and, uh, and uh, all of the people that mock God, the idea of God, the Word of God, uh, they're not as smart as they think they are because they will be completely seduced by uh, the Antichrist and he is uh, coming as Daniel reveals to us. And then I watched, uh, Daniel says here, until thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days uh, was seated. And so here uh, is, is the preface to the destruction, the judgment that is going to come upon uh, the kingdom of the little horn. And so the, the, uh, the uh, court of God uh, convenes and you notice that God is uh, put in, he's there, he is supreme there, he is uh, seated. And you'll notice that uh, when the Ancient of Days, speaking of God the Father, is seated, uh, he's not taking nitroglycerin tablets. He's not on any anti-anxiety medication at all. He is not worried at all at that time about, uh, in terms of whether the Antichrist is going to prevail in, in human uh, uh, history. Uh, the lies of the, the Antichrist will have no impact at all. Uh, upon, upon the heavenly scene. The, the only people that will have an impact upon are the people that are fool in it, foolishness and, uh, foolish enough to believe it uh, instead of, of the Word of God. And so uh, the, he's, uh, the thrones are put into place. There's no mention of who else fills the thrones. Uh, just uh, all we know for sure is that uh, God the Father is seated on, uh, on one of those thrones. And so it could be uh, others that would fill the, the thrones. It could be uh, angels, some speculate. It could be uh, uh, some Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, the apostles. There's all kinds of speculation uh, on it. We, we really don't know. And then you have this wonderful description uh, of the Ancient of Days, of God the Father as he sits now to judge all of this. His garment was white as snow, speaking of his holiness, speaking of his, his uh, moral uh, right uh, to judge unrighteousness. And the hair of his head was pure wool and so white and white hair, the hoary head in the Bible uh, speaks of of uh, the hair or the color of hair of an older person who, of course, in the Lord would be, it would be a symbol of age and uh, a symbol of, of wisdom. And uh, his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, speaking of the fact that uh, judgment, a righteous judgment, uh, the only judgment that can flow from the throne of God is a righteous judgment, and it will flow forth from God in bringing an end to the Antichrist's uh, rain. And a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 
10,000 times 10,000 uh, stood uh, before him. And so this, this stream comes forth signifying the judgment that God is going to pour forth out upon the Antichrist and his followers uh, at the time of Jesus' second coming and uh, the innumerable people that are, are listed here uh, ministering before the Lord, uh, innumerable when it talks about 10,000 times 10,000 standing uh, before him. It just speaks about the sheer uh, number of angels and saints who will be present uh, when uh, to witness this judgment of the Antichrist. And a similar scene is uh, that's going to mark God's judgment at the end of the seven-year tribulation, a, a, a cousin kind of passage related to the Daniel passage is Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 14, if you want to look into that on your own. And then God's judgment now falls upon uh, the Antichrist. The court was seated and the books were opened and I saw them because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. And so he's still yapping away. And I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, the four other beasts that come previous to the Antichrist uh, uh, world ruling empire, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so uh, God's judgment falls, the court is seated. The books are going to be open. The Ancient of Days uh, sits as a judge in the court, uh, and in scriptures, the, the books represent God's knowledge of all of the deeds, all of the actions, all of the motives, all of the words of every single person who has ever lived. And uh, at the, the white throne judgment, as it's described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, and I saw the dead and uh, small and uh, great standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things uh, which were written in the books. And so uh, it, this is a separate judgment from the, the, the white throne judgment that Jesus will preside over. This is a judgment that God the Father uh, presides over. And so the first beast, the Antichrist there in verse 11, he will be judged. Uh, but here, uh, these books contain the record of uh, the wicked words and deeds and motives and thoughts and, and actions of, of the Antichrist. They're brought forth as an evidence of his guilt. And then at Jesus' second coming, both the Antichrist and uh, the false prophet are defeated and they're captured. Uh, you might remember at the Battle of Armageddon and they and all of those who uh, receive the mark of the Antichrist and are following him will be cast into uh, the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And that is given to us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. Let me read it to you. And I saw the beast, and speaking of Armageddon, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him. That is God who sat on the horse, Jesus, and his, against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which, <clears throat> excuse me, he deceived those... <clears throat> He deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Uh, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the, on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so, uh, so much for Mr. Big Mouth Blasphemer. And uh, he's, uh, the devil is more significant and greater than any of us in, an, in our own natural strength, but no greater, uh, not greater than God or God who is in us. Greater is he that is in us, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, even speaking of the devil, much less the Antichrist. And, and so uh, at that point, at the, at the, at the, after the battle of Armageddon, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they are then thrown into this lake of fire. Uh, Satan himself 
will not be thrown into Gehenna or the eternal lake of fire uh, until uh, he's allowed them to tempt the world following the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then he gets thrown in. And so there's uh, two different judgments that occur uh, as, as, uh, uh, here. One, the Father oversees here and bringing an end to the reign of the Antichrist, Jesus at the end of the age in terms of uh, our eternal <clears throat> excuse me, eternal destinations, and that great white throne judgment is spoken of in, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 uh, through 15. And following that thousand-year reign of Christ, following a final rebellion that Satan is allowed to, uh, uh, to bring to the population of the world at that time, then uh, and that will be put down, and ultimately everything will give way to a new heaven and a new earth in which uh, righteousness dwells. When it talks in verse 12 about the rest of the beasts were judged, it's talking about the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and, and the Roman Empire. And those empires, they were brought to an end, uh, but they, uh, they would not meet the end of this final uh, empire. Uh, each of those peoples uh, continued to exist either in a, a weaker form in human history or to be absorbed by other kingdoms. But uh, they, the, the judgment that came upon them did not bring an end to uh, human history, so to speak, and the arrival of the Messiah, the stone that is going to hit the image in the feet in, in Daniel chapter 2, uh, that would occur uh, uniquely in that final world-ruling empire under uh, the Antichrist. And... And so in verse 13, uh, I was watching in the night uh, visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, now this is speaking of Jesus, uh, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days. So here you have a fascinating passage uh, that uh, speaks of plurality within the Godhead. In the Old Testament, you have God the Son and you have uh, God the Father being spoken of in, in the same passage. And he came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. So Jesus comes before the Father and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom uh, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so uh, here we see, uh, as we saw with the image in chapter 2, where you have this great image and then this, uh, this stone, uh, not cut with hands, strikes the image that represents the, the empires of mankind, man's governments, strikes it in the feet. The, the entire image crumbles now and then a great wind comes up and blows it away as if it never happened. And so it It'll be viewed in terms of, of eternity, Jesus bringing an end to all of it. This is Daniel's way, uh, this is a God's way of saying the same thing through Daniel, that Jesus' kingdom will come in at the end of this uh, kingdom of the Antichrist, and then his kingdom, his thousand-year reign on the earth will be established, and then ultimately give way to something he even greater, and that is uh, a new heaven uh, and uh, a new earth. And the dominion that he is going to establish there in, in, in verse uh, uh, 14, spoken so wonderfully, uh, it will not pass away, it shall not be destroyed, and, uh, and it's, it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. And to that, uh, we say hallelujah. The final world-ruling empire is going to be Jesus' uh, empire. Uh, God's plan is, is going to, be, uh, to prevail, and this will be the climax uh, of human history in that regard. And, and so Daniel, he, he sees all of this, and he was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. So he is, his mind is affected, his mind is troubled, his body is, is he's having a, a physical response to what it is that he is, he is seen in this uh, vision. And uh, I don't doubt that what troubled Daniel was, as he's getting this vision, it's a fabulous vision, except uh, if you put yourself in his shoes. 
And Daniel, perhaps, perhaps, it's a heavily qualified statement now that's going to follow a perhaps, uh, but perhaps he was hoping uh, that following the Babylonian Empire and the Jews being restored to their land, that Messiah would come quickly and there would be then the establishment of the reign of God on the earth. His thinking was maybe that all of this would happen much sooner than he's now being shown that it will. Now there, is, there are four more empires that are going to follow the Babylonian Empire and uh, he probably, uh, you know, oh no, uh, the, the Babylonian Empire's been rough enough, and, uh, and yet there's going to be uh, many more years of Gentile rule uh, before, uh, before all of this is put to an end. And he came near to one of those who stood by, uh, without a doubt, an angel, and probably the angel Gabriel, as he's identified later in the book. And uh, he asked the angel about the truth of all of this. And so the angel told Daniel and made known to him the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which will arise out of the earth. But, and it's a wonderful but in the Bible, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So if you didn't get uh, anything out of what I've said the previous 25 min minutes, uh, come away with this. Uh, that, that God is going to prevail and uh, his kingdom is going to prevail forever and ever. Isn't forever and ever a wonderful phrase in terms of thinking about uh, the kingdom of God and being done with all of this fallenness that we live in all day, every day, and we don't even know the toll that it takes on us on a daily basis. And, and, but Daniel, as is, is troubled as he is physically, in, in, in his mind and all, he's still curious. He's a prophecy uh, buff on things. And so he wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all of the others, speaking of the, the greatness of that, that Roman empire, exceedingly dreadful with its, its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And so he was uh, amazed at what he saw there in that vision. But he was also curious about the ten horns that were on its head and then that other uh, horn, which came up before which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth that spoke uh, pompous uh, words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. And I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, uh, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time uh, uh, came for the saints to possess uh, the kingdom. And so as he's, he's seeing this final horn, which represents the Antichrist, he's very, very curious uh, about it. And, uh, and he's most alarmed over the fact that uh, this, this uh, final, uh, this little horn and the man that's represented by him ha has, makes war against the saints and prevails against them. That's what alarms him. Now, a lot of times people will look at this passage and they will say, this is a proof text that Christians will go through the tribulation period, that we will be persecuted by the Antichrist, we will know this persecution. Um, I don't agree with that, uh, and I don't have the time to get into all of the reasons why for that. It's important to realize this is, this is describing what are known as tribulation saints. Once the rapture of the church occurs and the church is removed from the world, the Antichrist is unveiled, people are going to continue to become, they're going to continue to be saved. People are going to realize that what you've been telling them all along was true, and they're going to refuse to take the mark of the beast. They're going to uh, find that, that Bible that you had somewhere in your home and begin to read it for themselves. You're going to have uh, the, the uh, two witnesses preaching the gospel. You're going to have the 144,000 preaching the gospel. You're going to have an angelic being preaching the gospel to the entire world. Uh, uh, the number of people that will be saved during the tribulation period uh, they'll pay a terrible price for not being saved prior. 
but not in terms of, of eternity ultimately, but many, many people will be saved during the tribulation period, but they will be martyred for their faith. Uh, for their uh, refusal to take uh, the mark of the beast or get in line with the Antichrist's um, uh, thing that, that he is, is doing. And it is at that time, again, Armageddon, where the ancient of days, God the Father gives the word, things uh, move forward, and the judgment falls upon the Antichrist and the beast at that, that battle of Armageddon. And thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all of the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces, and the ten horns are ten kings which shall arise uh, out of that old Roman Empire, this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue the three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He's going to persecute the saints uh, of the Most High. He will intend to change uh, times uh, and uh, laws, and, and uh, so arrogant is to begin to ban uh, certainly any holidays, any kind of anything that has to do with, with Christianity or the God uh, of the Bible. The saints will be given into his hand, and uh, it will be for a time and times and half a time. So how much is a time? Time is one. How much is times? Two. And half a time is a half. So we're talking about three and a half, and so the three and a half uh, years being the final three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, which is known as the Great Tribulation. The seven years are known as the Tribulation, but for the first three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to come across as a man of peace. He's going to have all of the answers that people think they've been waiting for. And then at the midway point, following the abomination that causes desolation, then he turns his persecution against uh, uh, those that uh, oppose him in the form of Christians and also in the form of the Jews whose light goes on for them uh, related to the fact that he is not the Antichrist. But the court shall be seated. Uh, no matter what he does, what all of that kind of stuff, the court is going to be seated. God is in control and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever and then uh, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall uh, serve him. And this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed. The idea is he lost color in his face. He's, he's so impacted by uh, the visions, visions in the form of a single dream given to him, and, but he kept the matter in his heart, and obviously he ultimately uh, put it to the printed page by the Holy Spirit for us to, to learn from uh, tonight. And so we finish there uh, this evening. I mean, it is a prophetic marvel, Daniel chapter 7, as a standalone. There was no other prophecy in the Bible. It would be uh, an, an absolute uh, marvel. In the, in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were worshiping all of these idols instead of uh, worshiping God, uh, God presented to the Jewish people a God test, a test to put uh, their idols to uh, in order for them <clears throat> to prove that they are really a God and worthy of being followed. And, the, and the, the, it was a twofold test. He said, ask your idols to tell you the former things, how we got here why we're here, why, uh, how did all of this creation come into being and all of this design? Uh, ask them to give you an account of that. And then he said, ask them to tell you things that are going to come to pass uh, before they come to pass. And then God said significantly, that we may know that they are God's. And of course, no idol that, was, uh, that the Jews were worshiping or any idol that people worship today could uh, meet that test. Only the God of the Bible uh, can do that. As he's told us how human history began, the creation of the heavens and the earth and man, and then uh, all the way through a, a, a tremendous percentage uh, of the Bible is prophetic 
as it was first given and then ultimately fulfilled. And all of it is intended to be a a stamp of of approval or a revelation of the divine inspiration of the scriptures. Daniel could never know this on his own. No human being could know this with this kind of detail. Some of you here tonight, you say, too much detail, TMI, 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 TMI. But that's the whole idea. It's not just just some general thing of, you know, there's going to be a bunch of kingdoms and it'll all end and and God will end up reigning. No, the detail is supposed to astound us. And then when it unfolds, and the marvel is, is that when Daniel writes it in faith to God, all of it is future. And we sit here tonight and 80% of it is fulfilled historically, to a T. The only portion that hasn't been fulfilled yet is that final empire of the Antichrist. And the idea is that as surely as those other empires came and went, this final one will also. Let me close uh, with this. You thought I was closing. I'll only be another 30 seconds. Think about as a Christian, think about how much weight has been lifted off of you and me in terms of the future of the world by virtue of the prophetic element of the Scriptures and what we know to be the future, which we see forming right before our eyes in terms of the final kingdom. We don't worry about any of these things that the rest of the world is all anxious and up in arms in because this is all they have. This is as bad as it gets for us as strangers and pilgrims. Glory awaits for us. But to be able to walk through life from just the knowledge of where this is going and how it all ends and the peace that it gives us, which is another purpose uh, of, of the prophecies. And uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, knowing the history in advance, which makes it uh, far easier to navigate the history, of especially a, a history as filled with turmoil as uh, human history uh, must be and will be in this, this fallen world. If you sit here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, allow the, the, the sheer supernaturalness, the n- nothing else like this in the whole world of just one chapter of the Bible to impact you and cause you to look at the God of the Bible in a way that you can't look at anything or anyone else in the same way and come and surrender your life to him because one day he will judge not only the kingdoms of the world but he will judge each of us individually on the basis of what we have done with his son and either making his son our savior or rejecting him as our savior and thus making him our judge you do not want to stand before jesus christ one day as your judge and there's no need for it to happen Come forward tonight, give your life to Christ, and enter into the relationship with God and the life that God has planned for you. Now let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, we think about all of the museums of the world and all of these uh, diamonds and all of these great works of art that are uh, considered to be priceless. And, and always the cameras are on them and the sensors are on them and, and even still there's an attempt to steal uh, all of these things and these things that are viewed of, uh, to be of such immense uh, value and worth within the world. And we want you to know that we feel that about Daniel chapter 7 tonight. Nothing like it in all of the world. Come from your throne, Lord, and intended to do uh, wonderful things within our heart and our lives. And we thank you that it does do that and it has done that. 
Thank you for how rich you make us through your word and the truth that it brings to us and the perspective that it brings into our lives and the peace that it brings into our lives. We are more grateful than we could put into words. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer for anything tonight, uh, there will be, or give your life to the Lord tonight, there will be pastors.